0: Welcome to episode 230 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a good friend, Charlotte, on the program. She's been on before. It's been a while, but we're happy to have her back. We talk with this activist poet about the Mariner East 2 pipeline in Pennsylvania and the white pine camp's resistance to it. We talk about the economic issues, the environmental issues, the societal issues, and how hard it is sometimes to be a non-profit, geared, driven activist. We also have on this week's program, an EW essay by yours truly, titled Calamity. We have a wonderful short article by the writer Hallie Cantor titled The Writer's Process from a recent New Yorker magazine issue. And we have a poem titled Bob. All of this is complemented by, as is usually the case, several great tunes. So nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 230 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Calamity. I am a killer of hopes and dreams. I am a purveyor of greed through spectacular machines. I am a warmonger and despot, demanding high praise, obedience, and esteem. I am the oppressor, breeding fear and anger in the dilated pupils of a young person's innocent eyes. I am the warrior of personality and the confidant of ignorance. The woeful conspirer of a banal existence. I will confound, manipulate, and inspire you to illogical leaps of fate. And underlying it all is a cynical design template. Fueled with the substance of an ingrate more driven by an id than a superego. Ergo, this is how I pay the rent how I can elude and circumvent any truer responsibility for my own personal quagmire of personhood. I bury my discontent deep into your soul, polluting any chance of you understanding your essence, crafting lofty goals, visualizing a clear, healthy sense of who you might be instead. I leave you grappling with the basest challenges and impulses of your humanity. I am a natural calamity.
1: Oh, where have you been, my blue-eyed son? Oh, where have you been, my darling young one? I've stumbled on side of twelve misty mountains I've walked and I've crawled on six crooked highways I've stepped in the middle of seven sad forests I've been out in front of a dozen dead oceans I've been ten thousand miles in the mountains of a graveyard and it's hard it's hard it's hard it's hard it's hard it's gonna fall What did you hear my blue-eyed son Oh, what did you hear my And I'll blend their water
0: Is this Charlotte?
2: Yes it is. Hello EW <laughs> Conundrum.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to hear your voice again.
2: Yeah same to you it's been a little while so it's it's good to be back on and just hear your voice too. <laughs>
0: oh, Great thanks for taking the time out uh, ladies and gentlemen. Charlotte she is many things but we'll call her uh, activist and poet right now and um, we're going to get into some really interesting discussion i'm sure we're going to start off with something you're involved with it's uh white the white pine camp its resistance of mariner east 2 pipeline tell us a bit about that
2: okay <clears throat> and i'll try not to be pedantic <laughs> because um, it's really hard to talk about it without wanting to tell everything because there's been so many um, injustices and things like that. But like I said, I'll try to keep it simple. Um, Mariner East 2 Pipelines is running through the southern part of our state from the shale fields in Ohio and western Pennsylvania to Marcus Hook Refinery in um, the south of Pennsylvania, about 20 miles south. Um, Mariner East 2 is owned by Sunoka Logistics, whose parent company is Energy Transfer Partners, who is also the main um, uh, backer of the Dakota Access Pipeline, Energy Transfer Partners. They're the main company responsible for constructing that pipeline. Now, Mariner East 2 is running through Huntington County, which is South Central PA, where my friend Elise Gerhart's family's home is. Um, and they have many acres of forest there. And um, her mother, Ellen Gerhart, was also a steward of this forest. Um, and about a year ago, before um, permits were issued, they started clear cutting their land uh, for pipe, pipeline construction. Um, they were allowed to do this by, um, a eminent domain, uh, seizure, uh, condemnation issued by Huntington County judge, um, George Zanuck and which the family immediately appealed it after he issued it in December of 2015. And, um, even though they were challenging it in the Philadelphia district courts, um, with a group uh, nonprofit group called Clean Air Council, and it's still an ongoing case, um, he was able to sort of override that by issuing an emergency injunction to allow them to start uh, clear-cutting. Um, so that's when the resistance really began. Um, it started uh, with the tree sit and, of course, other uh, things on the ground that... Um, you know, uh, just protests and spreading the word and working with people in the other counties. But, um, yes, that's when it started, uh, last year and, um, the DEP finally issued the permits in February of this year. And those are the earth moving and water crossing permits to allow them to, uh, construct the pipeline and make way for the pipeline. Um, and, um, after that uh even though their case is still an appeal and everything um they are starting construction along the right-of-way the pipeline right-of-way and um they've already started constructing in their county so they're just waiting uh any day now for the sheriff's department to show up and deliver a writ of possession which um is a second emergency injunction that makes it it a lot easier to remove arrest and prosecute people. Um, so uh, do you have further questions
3: before we no, go on? No.
0: I mean the DEP you mentioned, and that's the Department of Environmental Protection for uh, Pennsylvania. <clears throat> um, you you uh, mentioned a, a, an emergency injunction. I, I suppose the emergency, as as the court sees it, has to do with economics for the gas company Mm
2: -hmm. they don't want them to
0: lose any money right um now what why why the resistance to this
2: um well firstly you know the thing i already mentioned was that their land was uh taken by eminent domain um the family the gerhardt family did not want this pipeline running through their land um you know they have uh, some trees, uh, were close to a hundred years old. Um, it's mostly an evergreen, uh, forest that they have on their home and many wetlands and, uh, streaks, uh, streaks, uh, <laughs> streams. And, uh, that run to the Juniata watershed. Um, so that, you know, just the poisoning of, um, our water resource is a big concern. Um, you know they uh, they hired a private ecological consulting firm to look at their land um, after Sunoco. In um, one of their permit applications to the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection, um, they marked where all the wetlands and waterways were on their um, uh, property, and um, this ecological salting firm found gross um, underrepresentation of wetlands and other waterways um, in their land. And um, so they, and um, this pipeline isn't even, it's transporting uh, byproducts of natural gas, not even liquid natural gas itself. It's um, NGLs or yeah, natural gas liquids, mostly like Uh, ethane butane propane but most of it is going to be used um, for uh, to be sent to international petrochemical markets um, for the manufacturing of plastics and that's over 80 percent of the NGLs are going to this export terminal terminal like the you know this isn't benefiting the state the citizens of Pennsylvania in any way and Sunoco has um, very bad track record with um, pipelines uh, accidents and incidents which is easy to find these statistics on uh, the pipeline hazardous materials and safety administration website it's a federal um, government um, program and um, but I know that there is at least one pipeline incident per day in the United States and you know, there's just pipeline incidents um, every day throughout the country as um, pipelines are starting to become more of a presence through um, throughout the country. And um, even terminals are being built along the coast, um, like in Cove Point, Maryland. Um, that's going to be, um, amongst other uh, pipelines, going to be taking um, liquid natural gas, and... Um, you know, like the raw stuff to an export terminal there by the Atlantic Sunrise pipeline that is also running through our state, but many other states. It's a federal pipeline. Um. So. So you, yeah.
0: di- you don't see <laughs> you don't see a benefit to the locality where this is occurring. You don't even see a benefit to the uh, the, the state at large, uh, economically maybe, but not directly related to the use of of the NGLs. Um, And you also, I suppose, uh, are concerned about the rights of citizens and their private property uh, being overridden by eminent domain and uh, a judicial system that has, it seems, uh, in its um, uh, set of Higher priorities, the financial interests of the the gas companies, uh, and and all of this stuff, as you mentioned, eighty percent of it is is basically going to international manufacturers for plastics. So, am I am I, am I clear and 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 accurate about your your major concerns? On, on top of it, water um, poisoning and and uh, whatever else might occur with uh, big accidents that regularly happen with with pipelines.
2: Yes, um, that is true. And thank you for (laughs) summarizing it and putting it uh, concisely. Well, it's I
0: mean, those are pretty common concerns and I think legitimate concerns. I would have to uh, agree with you on on those. Why do you think it happens uh, so often? I mean, you look at, you mentioned uh, DAPL, the Dakota Access Pipeline, Um, that's going ahead. Basically, despite uh, uh, federal um, concern at one point during the Obama administration and uh, a real national outpouring of, of uh, resistance, uh, citizen resistance to that project, nonetheless, still happening. You know, we have, you're talking about uh, sacred lands uh, for indigenous people. Uh, you're talking about water resource contamination potentially um but still it, it, these these actions from the courts uh and state federal institutions uh support the gas industry why why do you why do you think that keeps occurring
2: um well i do want to mention that um this has been occurring for a long time even before the trump administration um of course it's definitely expedited and gotten a lot worse uh, since the trump administration Um, you know, but, um, before I get back to that, um, you know, I just think that it's happening. I mean, just put it simply, just, um, interests in, you know, um, and ties to the natural gas and oil, um, companies. I mean, I think that industry is, um still like the most i mean this is just my own opinion but still the most um powerful force in the world even though the um presence of renewables um is growing and um you know hopefully everything that was discussed at um the paris climate summit paris climate summit will um uh and afterward the recent um Uh, Decision between China and the EU to really step it up and respond to climate change hopefully that continues to happen and oil and gas will phase out but um, you know to put it simply I just think it comes down to dollars for everyone involved Um, you know uh, politicians getting uh, major donations from these industries and and such like that
0: Um, well how do we stop that? How do we how do we stop that? I know you're part of a resistance movement, uh, and there are many many uh, tentacles uh, to that movement across our continent. How how, how does it work? How are we going to make it work?
2: Um, <clears throat> that is a very good question. Uh, I think that, <laughs> um, I think, I mean, even though the Dakota Access Pipeline is going forward. Um, Their divestment campaign was like really successful, Um, you know, up until the point it was approved again. (laughs) Um, And like even the divestment campaign in Wells Fargo has been Mm -hmm. uh, really successful for their... um, It started mainly for their backing of the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, But resistance needs to happen at many different levels. And right now, what the White Pine Camp is doing is like what um, the water protectors in the Standing Rock Sioux tribe um, and other First Nations were doing um, at uh, the site, uh, the construction site for the Dakota Access Pipeline. They they had to blockade it to stall time to put public pressure on um, these companies and their elected officials and um, also to um, you know, spread the word and, uh, use social media. Um, so I, I just think it's like all hands on deck, you know, um, and we're just trying to use what tactics we think are most successful. But, um, I mean, honestly, this, um, like I said, this has been happening, especially in Pennsylvania, um, with pipelines and fracking since 2007, 2008. And um, so this resistance has been going a long time in the state, um, just to the natural gas industry. Um, And it always seemed like uh, the Pennsylvania Department of uh, Environmental Protection and um, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, um, when it comes to federal pipelines, um, because that's interstate um, commerce, um they seem the DP and both uh FERC Federal Energy Regulatory Commission seem to kind of uh rubber stamp anything, everything. And um Do, do you get discouraged?
0: Do you get discouraged as an activist?
2: Um yeah, definitely. Um <laughs> I'll be honest. Especially since it's these are all really hard battles to to fight. Um you know that haven't seen a lot of success in the state um but there have been small victories and like um uh you know we just try to soak that in and uh learn what worked the best in those situations and um just try to take care of each other and um try not to burn out and and everything but it's difficult because um you know, um, and these rural communities, especially in Pennsylvania, um, uh, it's, it's hard to mobilize people. I mean, in areas where fracking has been going on a long time in like Susquehanna and Bradford County, um, you know, I meet people there who are farmers and hunters and business people, but, you know most of them they weren't environmentalists they weren't activists but how this affected them their families and their neighbors um made them want to respond and become active how did it how
0: did it affect them
2: um well uh especially um now (laughs) there's so many examples i'm trying to think of like
0: Well, generally. I mean, how did you, are they upset because of the landscape? Are they they upset because their health has been compromised, uh, traditions, uh, uh, you know, the rural lifestyle has been changed in a way they don't like, things like that?
2: Yes. Um, Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, Water, uh, drinking water, is definitely a big issue um, in areas where there is fracking where the drilling is going on the production before it gets to the pipeline
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, and uh, people's personal well water on their home is being contaminated um, it's really hard to prove in, in court uh, because the laws that these companies are protected by uh, by the federal and state governments um, to prove that these chemicals that are present in, or the concentrations of the chemicals are present in their drinking water, um, because these laws protect um, the uh, particular chemicals being used in their fracking fluids to actually do the drilling for the natural gas. So, um, and drilling can affect. A whole um, water table like an aquifer Um, so even if you know you didn't lease your land if your neighbor and I've you know met people who they didn't lease their land their uh, property was like five miles or ten miles away from uh, somebody else who leased their land and they ended up with contaminated water uh otherwise like so water is a huge issue um with farmers um it could get into their um fields um any sort of runoff or waste um from drilling um you know there's accidents uh that happen um if they have livestock um you know those if they're, you know, if a creek is contaminated or a field is contaminated, you know, this could affect, you know, their their livelihood, um, being able to raise livestock and sell it. And yeah, it's really disruptive to rural communities because it really, like, it could pit neighbor against neighbor um, for people who want to run it through their land um, or not, and if... But um, and that pertains to pipelines more. Um, so if one neighbor may not disagree, you know, with another labor neighbor who's on the same route and, you know, this neighbor who's opposed to it um, has to sign a lease for this pipeline to run through the other neighbor neighbor's property who signed the lease, um, you know, they're going to be upset if they can't, you know, get the money they wanted to through their lease uh, since their neighbor is choosing not to lease. And um, so it's neighbor against neighbor, even family members against family members. Um, some of these folks have had um, these properties in, you know, in their family for multiple generations. Um, you know, they're getting disrupted. You know, even with recreational things, like folks are upset about um, if a creek gets um, filled up with sedimentation or slurry, it actually does become polluted. You know, they can't fish anymore. You know, migration patterns are like being screwed up. And... Um, you know there's there's a lot of different concerns and how it really negatively affects
3: um
2: people in rural communities um oh and one more thing is originally um and i don't know how it is now with the presence of the new milford um satellite campus of lakamana college um of natural gas um the natural gas school that's a satellite of lakamana college i can't remember the title of it but Um, Originally, we have a lot of -of out-of-state workers who were coming in, raising rent prices, and, you know, they're far away from home, they have a ton of money, uh, they're in a new place, and there was a heightening amount of uh, crime, you know, uh, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, you know, things like that, so that was another concern. Um, for these rural communities that were generally quiet and, you know, everybody kind of knows each other, and uh, um, all of a sudden you have tons of folks from out of state um, negatively affecting uh, their area.
0: Yeah, and I guess the the initial uh, argument was it'll bring a lot of jobs to locals for, you know, within the industry, and and there weren't locals that were trained to be in the industry, uh, so that's why the out-of-state... Folks were coming in, as you mentioned. And I guess the Lackawanna College reference has to do with that program being put into place to educate the locals so that they can get those jobs. And that 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 brings us to the economic part of this discussion. It does afford or offer people, locals, to make a lot of money, whether it be uh, in working in the industry, uh, you get a high. You know, get as you mentioned. You get a, a lot of money. It's a high-paying gig, uh, and also people who lease their land. There was an article today uh, in the Scranton Times that they hit the one billion-dollar mark. Uh, they being uh, locals who lease their land to gas companies. That's how much they've earned: uh, one billion dollars at this point. So. That's pretty significant. The, the, we go back to economics. We started there basically in the beginning of our conversation. That—that That is the, the se- seemingly it is the, the most important factor to everybody involved. And uh, isn't that a significant factor when you balance it against uh, some of the other things we were saying are, are not so good?
2: Yeah. Um- it's definitely a significant factor. Um, especially cause that article referenced, uh, Dimmick Township. Um, and, um, they were, um, in the 2000 consensus, uh, about 8.5, um, 8.7% of their population was below the poverty line. Um, so, and I, um, know many families who lived in Dimmick and, um, you know, when this um, happened, when they they were kind of like the first area that, um, you know, fracking had started um, via Cabot Oil and Gas, um, you know, they the residents there, a lot of them, you know, th- uh, thought they hit the lottery. Um, you know, many uh, farmers can't even um, kind of maintain the cost of their property, and they're worried about selling their property eventually. Um, you know, uh, f- like subsidies for farmers got cut during the Bush Jr. Um, administration, and it um, has really negatively affected, and in, in the past, like, um, geez, how long is it now? Like almost 20 years, um, uh, farmers and um, uh, you know and a lot of families like their kids are going away they're not staying to keep up the family business because you know it's not making enough money so um, when they um, you know when when they approach them when Cabot Oil and Gas approached them it was just like a godsend and I understand that you know and I understand um, uh, Pennsylvania residents like wanting to have um really good jobs and things like that um i just really wish that um and actually i say good jobs but i mean uh well-paying jobs i should i should backtrack and not really say good because um i think it's a really dangerous profession to have whether you're working on a drilling rig or um, you're working on a pipeline or a compressor station or, like, any step along the way, um, I think it could be very dangerous. And in the state of Pennsylvania, you don't have um, even protections if you work for the company um, if you get into an accident for um, uh, chemicals to be disclosed um, to see what chemicals were used in the...
0: Um, the mixture.
2: ...quick. Uh, Yeah, like in the accident itself Um, and it's just like the um, cases of water contamination because these companies are protected from disclosing um, the information about the exact chemicals they're using um, and their fracking fluids, they're protected and um, even if someone is is negatively affected, if a worker is in an accident, um, they don't have to disclose those chemicals and it has happened before. so I just wish there are um you know ways to make a just transition from uh natural gas to renewable energies. Um you know I don't know the exact way to do that, but um I've been to some really great conferences um where you know uh uh coal mining plants were being shut down in areas that really funded uh the community there. And um, they're making a transition to benefit everybody in the community and um, union labor and things like that uh, to um, renewable energies. And, you know, in such a way that it'll it'll benefit everybody in the community and the community and labor and teachers have a way to negotiate what changes they want to see happen. So um, I definitely think we could create Um, employment um, you know for people if we started you know especially we have to rework our whole energy infrastructure like there would definitely be tons of jobs if renewable energies were um, you know being pushed more and taken seriously by our state and federal government Um, but I mean the bottom line is though like you can't Put you know a price on our resources, um, and you know just in a on a human level, um, you know our our drinking water, um, and our land and our air, and in the state of Pennsylvania, we're supposed to uh, be protected by our constitution. Those things are supposed to be protected by our constitution. And, um unfortunately, the Department of Environmental Protection hasn't been really uh, enforcing our constitution. So,
0: yeah, I think that's it specifically states that in the Constitution of Pennsylvania, you're right.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. um so you you, you right now are working to try to balance this set of state of affairs by resisting some of the, in, in particular right now, uh, we're talking about the Mariner East 2 pipeline, but generally, you're trying to, as they say, shine a light on the whole industry, uh, understanding the economic component and factors involved, and and also the environmental and social uh, issues that uh, are also involved. Um, you're, one of the things you're you're trying to do to uh, fund the the many activities within this resistance is, is what you're calling a dystopian dance party.
2: Yes. Um, you're having I just, a dystopian
0: dance party, Charlotte.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, well, I just got the venue confirmed this morning, so <laughs> I don't have a time. But this dystopian dance party, we're calling it um, Dancing on the Ruins. And it's, you know, anybody could um, show up, in their favorite apocalyptic dystopian like outfit you know like mad max or blade runner you know whatever um but this will be held at the keys um so it is a 21 and over um, benefit event um i don't have a time yet Uh, This is on Penn Avenue in Scranton, um, but it's going to be on July 29th, uh, the night of Arts on the Square. So it's a good stop, um, you know, after Arts on the Square. If you want to get a bite to eat and um, some food and then join the dance party or just hang out and see everybody's costumes and stuff. But this is going toward the White Pine Camp uh, Legal Defense Fund. Um, because, uh, like I said, they are expecting to the sheriff's department to show up any day with this writ of possession, and they're planning to blockade the pipeline construction um, till the very end. Everybody's really dedicated to this, especially the Gerhardt family. So, yes, and This is through my union, the Northeastern Pennsylvania Industrial Workers of the World, our um, General Defense Committee. And we don't have an event up on Facebook yet, but we will post a Facebook event uh, through the Northeastern Pennsylvania IWW page, and there will definitely be more info out there the electric city. I'm going to get the word out, but like I said, I just got the venue confirmation this morning, but I'm super excited. I think it's going to be a lot of fun and a great way to support their fight right now. Ugh, sometimes the soul crushing work, but I don't know. It's it's all worth it. Like protecting our resources for multiple generations um, is is totally worth it to me.
0: Thank you so much, Charlotte. Thank you for your, your hard work, your good work.
2: Thank you so much for having me on. What? I appreciate it. It's so great to be on again. <laughs> it's always a
0: pleasure. We'll have you on again.
2: Okay. <laughs> Thank Bye. you. Enjoy your day.
4: And I have got an open wound Wanna suck the poison out Will you suck the poison out And I would spread my wings If they weren't so goddamn heavy Yeah, I would spread my wings If they weren't coated in honey you. I'm sure that I could get them clean. I won't be gentle anymore. I'll use expensive soap. I'll scrub aggressively. There'd be no more germs. You would be so clean. You would be clean. Being dirty is practical. All the girls leave you alone. When you're sticking to yourself, you don't want nobody else. And I would spread my wings if they weren't so goddamn heavy. Yeah, I would spread my wings if they weren't coated in honey. on your chest we could live together there never fly to anywhere
0: A short article from the May 29, 2017 issue of The New Yorker magazine, written by Hallie Cantor, titled The Writer's Process. Hmm, what's my process? Funny, I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. I don't really have a process, per se. Just a simple routine that I meticulously follow every day, like a disciplined genius robot. I usually wake up around 5 or 5.05am and get out of bed immediately. I do not press snooze, I do not start scrolling through Twitter so that the brightness of my phone's LED screen will force my eyes into awakenedness, but then continue reading tweets for so long that my eyes adjust to the brightness and I get sleepy again. I meditate first thing in the morning. I do this sitting down on a meditation pillow, which is not painful because I have naturally good posture. I do not use a meditation app because I am not a baby. I just set a timer to emit a gentle gong sound after an hour and I empty my mind. When thoughts do arise, they are usually really smart thoughts about my writing, but I do not hold on to them in a panic because I have enough faith in myself to know that they will return when it is time. Then I run 10 miles and make a smoothie. I don't drink coffee because that would probably just lead to hours of wondering if maybe I haven't had enough coffee, but being unwilling to drink more because I don't want to get addicted and need more and more coffee every day just to be able to function. The smoothie usually has coconut oil in it. Yum! Finally, it's time to write. My desk is a clean, uncluttered expanse that I use solely for writing, and certainly not as a dumping ground for wedding invitations, gum wrappers, and grocery store receipts that I'm afraid to throw away in case I need them for tax purposes. On the wall above my computer, I have taped up an index card with a quote from Kafka or Don DeLillo, or some other cool writer, which inspires me anew each time I look at it. You'd think that I would become blind to it after a while, or that I might occasionally feel embarrassed by its pretentiousness when guests come over, but nope. It's just constantly inspirational and not embarrassing. I remain seated at my desk for the entirety of my writing session I do not attempt to convince myself that I could be just as productive if I were writing in bed and that it would be kind of fun and like college. I don't need to disable my internet connection because, honestly, I'm not even tempted. I understand that social media does not hold the answers I seek and that looking at it will only make me feel terrible. And what's more, my understanding of this fact translates seamlessly into my actual behavior. I have a friendly relationship with the mysterious forces that govern my creative inspiration, my muses, if you will. When they visit me, a soft smile alights on my lips. Hello, old friends, I murmur fondly. My experience of writing is a giddy, pleasurable one and does not feel like being trapped inside a cage that is on fire. When I write, I let my characters speak through me. I am but a vessel for their words. I shut out all distractions and turn off my phone because I definitely don't worry that if I take too long to text people back, they'll decide they hate me and never text me again. In the afternoon, I typically take a long walk. I do not listen to podcasts. Why would I? The music of the natural world is podcast enough. As you may have noticed, a running theme in my process is that I am not afraid to be alone with my thoughts, not at all. Of course, some days the muses may not visit me. When this occurs, I accept the situation with equanimity and give myself permission to write a clumsy first draft and vigorously edit it later. This approach is possibly because I understand that my intris- intrinsic self-worth is separate from my talent, and my productivity, and because I know that I am deserving of love, even if my writing is not very good. This gives me the freedom to take risks, which in turn actually makes my writing very good. Funny, right? If I am truly stuck, I read a book. I do not watch a 22-minute sitcom as a, quote, break from the immense stress of waking up and sitting down at a desk. Not even if there is a new episode on Hulu of a show I don't particularly like but have seen every episode of. Anyway, I guess that's my process. It's all about repetition, really. Doing the same thing every single day. No one else in the world cares at all. Yet I still do it because I, a human being have the self-control to maintain this routine in a complete vacuum of social interaction or any positive reinforcement. Oh, and I almost forgot, I go to bed super early. Bob, wrinkle the silk cloth cover that hangs over the back of the deep black brown wood chair as it sets solid in the sun-filled dining room at the old family table, surrounded by three windows, trees through them the four-dimensional concert hall of birdsong As the heat wave eases in This morning I said hello to Bob Philbin As we walked our children to school
5: I seem to recognize your face Haunting familiar yet I can't seem to place it Cannot find to light your name Lifetimes are catching up with me All these changes take place I wish I'd seen the place But no one's ever taken God's day. On the shell. I change by not changing at all. Small town predicts my fate. Perhaps that's what no one wants to see. I just wanna scream. Hello. Now here you are, and here I am Hearts and thoughts, they fade away Hearts and thoughts, they fade, fade away Hearts and thoughts, they fade, fade
0: And there you have it, episode two hundred and thirty of Troubadours and Rock on Tours. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, the program's good friend, Charlotte, poet activist. Thank you so much for talking with us this week, Charlotte, and have fun at your dystopian dance party. I also like to thank Writer Hallie Cantor and the New Yorker magazine and these musical artists Paul Pinto, Lucas Steele, Nick Toski, Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians, Sloth Rust, ten thousand Maniacs, Pearl Jam, Brantford Marsalis and Terrence Blanchard too. Have a wonderful week. And hey, Martina. Nice reviews. And yes, I'd like to make mention of one of our regular guests, one of the best playwrights in the country, Martina Mayok, just recently opened Cost of Living. We spoke about that a few weeks ago on the program, and it's really getting some great reviews. It's on the front page of the uh, arts section of the New York Times this past Wednesday. You should check it out. It's at the Manhattan Theater Club right through July. Our compliments, Martina. Until next week, enjoy this week. Take care.